What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Anthro Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Anthro Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes a guest, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. Wide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit us at bullsradio.org. So thank you for tuning in to the second hour of Anthro Alert. If you missed the first hour, well, sorry about that because you missed a good conversation, but you're here, so that's good. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Spencer, what would you say was the biggest takeaway from that first hour? Uh, I actually really liked how Dr. Sanders talked about anthropology's role in development and sort of um, how anthropologists need to – or how how she explained how she works with other disciplines in a collaborative interdisciplinary environment. Uh, definitely, because that's that's something that we've um, that we talk about in class, but not like we don't always have um, concrete examples of how that happens. Right. Which we got today. So. So her yeah her her concrete examples and experience was was very helpful. Yeah. For a young graduate student like myself. And so uh, so yeah, you're listening to Anthro Alert. This is on Bulls Radio. Um, Anthro Alert is the show where we take anthropology and we explode it into all these different conversations about what anthropologists do and why they do the work they do or, or how. And and we just kind of explain what anthropology is. And just so you know, this is out of the University of South Florida here in um, beautiful, cloudy Tampa Bay, Florida, where a tropical storm is currently heading our direction. Heading our, heading our direction-ish yep. somewhere. Um, it, it really... Whatever. We're going to get the side, like we always do. It's, it's like, so pleasantly muggy outside. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the usual. 95% humidity. Yeah. All right. Um, but uh, everything we say on this show is the our own opinion. Um, yep. It does not necessarily re- reflect or represent what anthropologists um, believe or think or do, uh, nor is it representative of the University of South Florida, anthrop- um, the, yeah, the university, anthropology department here, uh, student government, or anything else, really, except except the stuff that we each say. Yeah, and it only really matters to us, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so today, for the second hour of the show, we have Dr. Dylan Mahoney. Thank you, Dr. Mahoney, for joining us. Glad to be here. Yes, he is um, a professor in our department here at USF, and we will be talking to him about um, some of the work that he's done in the past, but mainly about his work here in Tampa with the Congolese refugees um, that have been coming into tampa for what about a year or two now last couple of years yes. last couple of years 2015 really 2016 okay and and we also have on the show um phd student alex webb who is um helping provide color commentary today hello yes (laughs) and then i'm renee and of course um everybody knows spencer yeah you guys hear my voice all the time probably sick of it by now but that's the only reason people tune in. That's true. There's a fan club just here to hear your smooth vocals. Oh, well, I'm flattered for that one person that tunes in. <laughs> it's my, my mom. It's really. actually, and she loves your voice. Uh, all right, so let's just hop right into the conversation. Um, Dr. Mahoney, can you um, – I guess you had, a, you had a book coming out that already came out last week. Last yes, year, out, correct? Came out a year ago. And it's yeah. kind of dis- it's discussing um, the work that you did for your dissertation, correct? 
Yeah, so if you're interested, the, the book is called The Art of Connection from uh, University of California Press, 2017. And um, my research in Kenya really began in 2001 when I traveled to Kenya to uh, – I was interested in international development, actually, and you were just talking about development. And, and I was told if I learned Swahili, I could get lots of jobs, actually, in doing relief work or international development work. And so mm -hmm. I, I went on an intensive Swahili language program and realized I was not as interested in doing international development work. I was more interested, actually, in, in applied anthropology and such, mm. and that's how I got into the field. But um, I was I was thinking I, I had uh, – the last time I was on a radio show was in Mombasa, Kenya, when uh, I, I worked a lot with uh, the National Museums of Kenya, especially on the coast of Kenya and Mombasa, at the Fort Jesus Museum, which is not only the most frequented tourist site but also the headquarters of the museum. And I uh, – was invited to be on a uh, radio show on Radio Salam in Mombasa uh, to speak. It, it was all in Swahili, so this mm. is this is a little nicer to be in English. It's a little <laughs> more native to me, but uh, explaining basically my research at the time, and we were taking study abroad students to Kenya at the time, uh, and there were a lot of questions about security on the coast. And uh, we'll actually, hopefully, uh, beginning next summer, be starting a new field school again with the National Museum. Um, and I'll be there this summer, actually, in Kenya mm -hmm. to to help set that up. My initial research, just to get back to your question, if yeah. you read the book, um, I believe there's one copy left on Amazon when I last checked. <laughs> but um, when I last uh, when I last checked, but the book focuses largely on the impact of cell phones and digital communications on small scale business in mm -hmm. Kenya. And I was really interested with people working around the tourism industry, which is the biggest signal single sector uh, in Kenya's economy, or has been over the last decade and a half. Although that depends on fluctuations in the economy, various global events, right? Um, and the new project is more focused on environmental issues. Hmm. So, do you think you'll continue any of that work that you did previously on digital media and thing with small business, or are you yes. largely transitioning into into new projects? I'm largely transitioning to new projects, and in fact, you will find um, you become in many ways married to your research as a grad student, and you will find, and this is not a anything to say about marriage my fiance is not listening but at a certain <laughs> point you you need to move on uh yeah. from from your dissertation research right. uh, maybe that's the wrong connection to make here but mm. uh i am still very interested in digital technology i also feel that there was a, a very important time period in kenya's history when uh, i first stepped foot in kenya it was very rare for people to have cell phones and mm. internet cafes had just opened in the last two or three months and then you saw this sort of wave of expansion of, you know, what are referred to in the development world as ICTs. And now things have sort of plateaued, honestly. What um, are ICTs? Information and communication technologies. Okay. So if you're, if you're into the, the literature, sure. okay. you'll, have th you'll see things like I the effect of ICTs on the MSEs. And it's like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> um, There's a lot of acronyms there. No uh, letters affect other letters. And that's yeah. actually a big part of the how anthropologists have to deal with development and development literature mm -hmm. and picking apart those discourses. Mm -hmm. Th that's a funny uh, analogy you make, though, with um, being married to your research. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I mean, me and my research are not on speaking terms right now, so. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a love-hate relationship. It, no. Yeah, it really is. I'm coming um, to kind of realize that. And it, it you know, and it also has to be a changing relationship. Maybe that's the key, is if it becomes stagnant, the relationship will not continue to, so well. You know, mm -hmm. So you have to keep changing things and keep right. moving into new directions. So, right. for example, like I'm still doing some research on digital te technology in Kenya, uh, mostly interested in uh, mobile money transfers, mm -hmm. which was something that made it into the book briefly. But mm -hmm. 
there's a lot to work on there. And also right. mapping, a lot of what we can do with digital mapping and applying that using apps, for example, for future research projects, mm. uh, but not as specific as the original project. Right. So I guess moving into some of your um, upcoming projects, uh, you mentioned that you're going to be working more on environmental-type work, right? So conservation and environmental change, I believe, with the, mm -hmm. the museum that you just mentioned. Yes, it's the National Museum of Kenya, although we have a number of collaborators on the project. Okay. And and I should say, uh, I was just before this communicating with a few of them. Nancy Mwinde and Stan Kivai are both Kenyan anthropologists, mm -hmm. uh, Kenyan PhDs. They are uh, researchers currently with the uh, conservation unit within the National Museum of Kenya, and so they are mm -hmm. actually, as anthropologists, more interested in human environmental interaction. Okay. Uh, but we're also working with Kenya Wildlife Service, uh, Kenya Forestry Service, and they don't always get along. Mm -hmm. And so that's some of what we're negotiating. Uh, there's also community organizations that we're working with, and so we can walk various lines there as right. anthropologists, which is sort of our role. So what are like the some of the key concerns here in this in this project that you guys are trying to sort of unravel, understand, negotiate, all, all that? Well, part of it is well fundamentally it's about understandings of environmental change. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to approach this from, you know, development literature tends to produce narratives around change. And then you have, you know, sustainable development narratives or you know, develop, uh, narratives of environmental change that are often rooted in all kinds of assumptions about humans' relationships with the environment and humans' role in, in what's taking place. And so um, there are a number of these different narratives. You can talk about one of which is the savannization narrative, for example, the idea that the world was once fully forested and where you find a savanna, it's because people have cut down the trees. Um, mm. In fact, it's often the opposite. Mm. People are often involved in propagating trees. Um, you find problematic narratives around fire, for example, an anthropogenic fire, the idea that if people are starting fires, this mm -hmm. is bad for the environment. In fact, right. this can be essential for the environment. That's kind of centered around, like, Slashenberg and agriculture and things like that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Or and that's I, at least a part of it. Yeah. And that's and that's a part of it, right. So so the idea of Slashenberg and agriculture, even as a term, is sort of negative, the idea that you're slashing and burning. But, mm -hmm. in fact, it's very important for the environment to right. turn over nutrients and exactly. open up space. Exactly, right. yeah. And... There has been some – so in the Chulu Hills National Park, which is one of the national parks that surrounds the area we're working in, um, people had been pushed out of the park and into a very inhospitable, dry area near a highway, which is actually part of the story because they can sell things to people who drive by on the highway. Mm -hmm. So that actually nurtures all types of illegal activity because you can go into the park and get things like medicinal plants, honey, um, other other substances, um, legal and illegal, uh, Mirage is not real well known in the U.S., but that's one of the big things. that It's legal in Kenya. It's illegal in the U.S., but it's mm. a stimulant that you chew. But there are lots of different things that people do in the park that are illegal, and because the highway is there, they can sell things to people so on the highway. So it's just kind of an informal market that exists. So it's, yeah, it's this exists. huge informal economy, mm. uh, which is what I'm, I'm interested in. Cool. So, um, right, it, it, it becomes... It becomes a, a difficulty in terms of how to negotiate a lot of the sensitivities there because Kenya Wildlife Service is, for example, very interested in uh, shooting people who go into the park, essentially. And, and they've built a fence that's electrified in 2017. They just completed. Um, <coughs> so we're interested in figuring out if there are sustainable ways that people can now the, use the park. The yeah. things they get, are they getting those things from within the park? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, so but they're they, harvesting things from in the The park is, is uh, I should say rather high altitude it's hills it's okay. chulu hills national park so it rains up in the hills and it's very 
wet up in the hills and you have um, grass for you know cattle you have you know wood okay. for building houses when you go down into the area where people have been pushed it's essentially red sort of red desert did they displace um, communities that used to live in there out yes. of it when they yes. turned into conservation yeah and it? actually yeah. this is very recent um, the displacements from the park were in 1992 so a lot of people still re- remember this when they had property they owned that property and they were just told by the government you need to move and the people who didn't were physically burned out right um and so that created the tensions that that continue today and the loss of livelihoods right they probably didn't supplement very well Well, exactly and the thing is you take farmers who live up in nice high altitude hills (laughs) and say go live down in the desert desert (laughs) uh you can still farm right well no you can't now i should say now the issue then becomes the primary conservation narrative is that these people don't have good livelihoods because in the like the desert that they're living in is a desert because it's their fault right that it's not raining because environmental change it's not raining because they've cut down too much wood um that they've deforested the park uh, that they're burning the park so i was actually invited to write a piece by a conservation magazine about how bad the fires are and i wrote back to them and i said the fires are not bad mm. they're really actually important they're controlled well, and the entire conservation community is confused about this. And you find that when you get there on the ground. Um, the issue is that the money that feeds Kenya Wildlife and Kenya Forestry conservation. comes from international conservation organizations. And they don't have the ability to challenge what that money is put towards. Mm. Um, if a, and this is the truth. If, and this is one case. If a gap year British student happens to be driving down the road, and this is the story on the blog, and sees a fire and jumps out and decides to heroically fight the fire and then start a fund to fight fires in Chulu Hills, that's going to channel a lot of money into fighting the wrong thing. Hmm. Uh, and these are the kind of narratives that we're constantly running into. And there are some Kenyans working on this. Uh, and I can actually just mention one of the best is a guy named Peter Kamau. He was a former Kenya wildlife ranger who worked there and ended up going to grad school in the U.S. in applied anthropology. Hmm. Uh, he's currently at LSU um, and has done a lot of really great work that's influenced me on fire. And he identified, I believe, 29 reasons why people are burning the park hmm. uh, and why they argue it's worth being shot to go in and burn the park. Yeah, I'm just um, curious, what was the reaction of that conservation magazine when he told them, like, this is actually, you know, this is kind of how it is? You know? It was funny. They sort of really shortly wrote back and said, oh, don't worry, we found somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, th- in that case, they're not an academic. This I'm not even going to mention who it was. They're, they were not an academic. They, they're an ideological. Yeah, it was very much an ideological magazine, and that's mm. what their readership wants to hear, and they're not really interested in data. And you find that in a lot of the Western environmentalist community, and, and that has to be overcome. Environmental justice is a way to, to help overcome that. And we kind are framing of, Kind of puts as, them together. Right. Yeah, it's, as, this is an environmental justice issue. You can't, for example, go in and tell these people, which is what's also happening, mm. you need to stop making charcoal and using charcoal because this is destroying the environment and causing climate change. First of all, <laughs> climate change is not being caused by, charcoal by these people burning and making charcoal. Mm. You know, it's being caused by industrial countries and, and yeah. gasoline and sitting in traffic. But the other thing is when you go into – and I've seen this happen. When you tell people who have no running water and electricity, stop making charcoal and burning charcoal, power from? <laughs> you're telling them don't boil your water, yeah. don't cook your food, uh, and, and, and have no right. money. And, yeah. and right. you know – so, so we've been pretty good in our. We've we've made two trips to the to the site. I personally have been part of two trips to the 
to the site. My collaborators have been there more, and and the local community talks to us, and, and they get us, and uh, and and they like us a lot, and and I'm Facebook friends with a lot of them, as well as a lot of the people who are in Kenya forestry and Kenya mm-hmm. wildlife, which is interesting. It makes for interesting Facebook conversions. Right. You said there's a conflict between forestry and wildlife. Yes. Is no, that's that, a, is one management oriented, one conservation oriented, or is there? What, what would you say? So that's that's actually a really good question. The, the Kenya forestry technician in that area is actually working very closely with the local community, and they don't have a problem with him. And he's working on propagation and teaching people tree propagation. It's actually the wildlife people who they'll say are the problem. And However, if you talk to the wildlife people, they'll say those forestry people only care about trees. They don't care about animals. And the forestry people will say, well, those wildlife people only care about animals. Mm. They don't care about the habitat. Mm. Hmm. And the government, believe it or not, has tried to merge Kenya wildlife and Kenya forestry historically. I think at one time they were merged. Uh, I was there in 2015 when the merger was discussed, and people were furious about this <laughs> within those services. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it's funny because they're even somewhat ideologically different, right, yeah. the forestry versus the wildlife service. So that's another aspect, actually, of what we're trying to yeah, it's really interesting because they're like so interconnected, right? Because it's like habitat and like the wildlife. I mean, that's I get so interested by that epistemological origin of, yeah. the, of an institution and how that constrains what they even consider important and not important, and how that creates yeah. conflicts, even though there should be overlap. Well, the great connection to anthropology here is a lot of this is rooted in the Leakeys. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis, mm-hmm. you know, and Richard actually Richard Leakey was involved in the creation of a lot of these mm-hmm. organizations, mm-hmm. Um, and so it has sort of an anthropological, colonial, interesting history, mm-hmm. and uh, and you can still see some of the, the the remnants of that. Now, the money today plays a key role, right? The reason you see this separation often between wood and, and animal is the value of those, right? The way mm-hmm. they're valued both as commodities but also as like tourism resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, one of the reasons why Kenya wildlife has been under so much pressure the last couple of years is because of the heightened elephant poaching. So poaching suddenly is getting a lot of money, although the poaching that we're talking about is not elephant poaching. The local community is killing small animals to eat because they need protein yeah, in their diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that becomes poaching. And, and there's lots of literature on this, you know, yeah, um, right. political ecology and, and right. what does it mean to be poacher. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're actually working on this summer, I should say, is very quick, like one week of research, um, we're we're going to present some uh, some of our research in a conference in the fall. But what we would like to do actually is set up a field school to get more students involved. Um, we really think that having neutral people in the equation is important, mm. and Americans actually play a fairly good role in that position. Uh, their positionality as these like neutral observers, in a sense, who everybody wants to talk to and tell their side of the story. I think will actually work out pretty well. And so the mm-hmm. idea would be beginning next summer to bring grad and undergrad students to get involved in, in that project and have a basically a methods field school that would be interdisciplinary but would also allow us to collect the data that we need to keep that project going. So. Yeah. And so speaking Swahili, I assume, would be a requirement for going? Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, I will say, actually, for those who might be interested in going on this uh, or traveling to the area, most people are English speakers. Our team would be obviously multilingual but uh we're gonna have we probably have a two credit out of six credit we probably have a two credit language component 
where you would learn some basic Swahili. But in the area we were in, actually, most people speak Kamba as a first language. Mm. Um, and so I actually have to learn sort of Kambaized Swahili to communicate there anyway. So it would be tough for students. But most people, you'll, you'll we'll have enough English speakers okay. hmm. that that wouldn't be an issue, actually. And, and on uh, on that note, on language learning goodness, uh, we'll take a short break. We'll, we'll, we'll be right back. Yep. Listen to Bulls Radio, Anthony Alert on Bulls Radio. Hey, everyone, you're back on Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. We're currently here with Dr. Dylan Mahoney from Anthropology Department at USF. We're talking about environmental change, uh, conservation in Kenya. Um, And so we're just going to continue the conversation. Alex, I think you had a a burning question. I did, yeah. I was was just a little curious about... um if you could speak a little more, more about this, which I, I think you referred to it uh, on the break, as fortress conservation. or yeah. uh, and, and this was widely done, especially through Africa, mostly by um, international organizations. Varunga National Park is one of the most famous mm-hmm. examples of, of uh, creating a conservation zone by displacing everyone inside of it and then not right. having any outlet to deal with the ramifications of where those people would go and what they would do. Right. And that displacement, again, is, is rooted in colonialism. I mean, there was displacement before conservation. So what's interesting is claiming land and displacing people as a, you know, that has a longer history than fortress conservation. It's almost like this is the new iteration of oh, displacement, yeah, okay. right? But uh, it has to do with how land is valued, what it's valued for. And what, so, you know, the early colonial era, people were valuing land for its productivity as agricultural land. Uh, and now you're valuing a lot of land because of its use for a, a, a park, you know, conservation for tourists tourism. or or whatever exactly conservation means, right. right? And then it's about valuation of environmental resources for different different parties. And so, you know, that's where you see a lot of this, this inequality. Um, I mean, the other thing that you had mentioned, too, was the way that they're trying to, and we, we talked about this at the break, but uh, you know, there are several initiatives that are about, and they're, they're derived from economists who are not real familiar with with what's taking place on the ground, but it's how can we have a system of uh, credits, for example, or carbon credits, where we can get people to stop burning fossil fuels uh, and then we'll give them something back in return. What's so fascinating about these projects is you're targeting the people in the world who are literally producing the least amount mm-hmm. of fossil fuels with a lot of these projects, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the UN Red Plus project. Um, and then it produces this idea that, in fact, the people in that area are responsible for the climate change. Or that they, yeah, they're somehow dirtier than everyone else because they have a less efficient energy production process. Well, right. Or, or that, that you don't have the same alienation of the means of production for your energy. Right. right. You see where your energy is coming from. Now, the idea of saying stop burning you know, charcoal and we'll give you internet. That internet needs to be powered by electricity, right? That is producing also a lot of carbon, right. uh, not necessarily in a clean way, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's that 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 alienation. Not to go all Marx on you, but the alienation of the means of production of electricity, mm-hmm. right, is an important aspect. Well, no, there's an the irony there because there there is generally a critically critical infrastructures are a little intertwined. Once you get mm-hmm. one, you you tend to get others, mm-hmm. whether water, power sanitation mm-hmm. etc uh, and then they you know they modeled this is one of the things i learned last round in grad school and uh, environmental sciences is a kutznetz curve where there's a notion that you pollute more until you reach a certain apex and then you start to pollute less more you start to pollute more efficiently mm. that this is that's a pretty common you start burning charcoal and as you gain more critical infrastructure 
populations will grow and you'll continue to be dirty. This is the, the China phenomenon, the Indian mm-hmm. phenomenon. As, mm-hmm. as economic growth increases, they're, they're, there's, a, there's more pollutants in the air. They're less efficient. But there, there is a curve there where it actually comes back around. So there's a kind of a penalty phase for growth that we have to endure or anyone has to do or any population right. that wants to. But it's interesting that they would they, they kind of bypass all that by going, no, no, you need to be where we are without any – well, and again, another mm-hmm. issue, and this is where we as anthropologists can make a real role or play a real important role here, is it's it's still too easy, and it's happening in this discussion. Obviously, we don't have a lot of time. Where we're sort of picturing, you know, the global powers and then these local Kenyan farmers mm-hmm. who are displaced. The regional power differences mm-hmm. within Kenya are also just amazing, right? So the way the Kamba are treated versus the way the Maasai are treated, you know, is really important. In, in the way, and I don't have time to go into all this, right, but. Right, right. Um, But, you know, it made me think of when you're talking about the infrastructure, you know, you have water present in this area and there's a major that's actually this region produces all the water for the coast of Kenya. Hmm. But that water is all piped to the coast. It's not diverted to where the people in that area live. There's plenty of water, in fact. And if you take, you know, you could take a real critical infrastructural approach and say what is really happening here is. You know, you're just diverting the water to the coast, to the tourist hotels, to the but isn't, I mean, and that's normally the case. I would say most yeah. places aren't so researched. Say it does happen, but most places aren't so resource deficient that that's the reason that people are suffering. It's the access to those resources. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and, and that's a great point. Because what it, but unfortunately, what often happens is it does often, if you just take a, a cursory look at what's going mm-hmm. on, it's like, oh, look at you know, these poor Africans who have no water and they're going through drought. And, uh, right. It's like, well, right. it's a little more complicated right, than right, that, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to segue, because <laughs> okay. um, uh, I'd love to talk a bit about the work we're doing here in Tampa with refugees. Let's and actually, do it. you'd mentioned the rain, and tomorrow I've actually been trying to set up a big day delivering donations tomorrow, and then Tuesday we're doing hygiene workshops with people. But um, I will say it's it's interesting because I'm working with these Swahili-speaking African communities here in Tampa now as well as working with these impoverished communities in eastern Kenya. And both communities are very marginalized. Mm. One community has refugee status. Uh, the other one is, is are barely treated like citizens in their own country. And so it's actually really interesting. It's been really difficult for me, too, as a researcher, to have a home in the U.S., do research overseas, but then have your home back here and then have research in, in your own community. Mm-hmm. And so when I started working with, with Congolese refugees here in Tampa two years ago, uh, really, a year and a half ago, um, they were recently arrived here in Tampa. They were they were in a lot of need, but they were also leaving, living largely in my neighborhood in East Tampa, um, the area around Sly Avenue, 56th, um, Hillsboro, uh, King High School area, and that was interesting because people were knocking on my door suddenly <laughs> and calling me all day. I would go to bed and wake up, and I'd have a, my voice box, my inbox would be full with voice messages, and. Um, that has been an overwhelming project. Mm. Um, my colleague, Dr. Bayer, in our department, who has a lot of experience working with refugees, pulled me into this, and she warned me at the beginning, watch out, because when you start working with refugees, you will get sucked in, <laughs> and, and you, you'll never get out. And, and she was 100% correct and has, has tried to coach me through burning out multiple times. Mm. But that's that's actually one of the main projects we're working on here, and with lots of student involvement. Can you can you talk a little bit about how you kind of went about dealing with when, you know, the field and your home aren't necessarily as separate as they were before, and now they're kind of starting to blur. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not the United States and Kenya anymore. It's kind of 
all in one spot. Well, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's not even, I mean, it's, it's hard to describe it as even location or site-based research. A lot of what we're doing with the Congolese is also social media based. You know, we're communicating all the time through WhatsApp and, and Facebook and other, or, you know, we have a YouTube group. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's about that part of connectivity. And actually that started to happen with my, you know, my early research in Kenya, I would come home but then I would still be Facebook friends with these people. So that's a little bit of a, a challenge. Hmm. Um, what, what, what really I think is most challenging for me, though, was when oftentimes when you're doing field work, I love doing field work and I've taught methods, you, you pour yourself into it. And it's easy to do that in the field. It's like you're because you have an escape. You can go somewhere else. When you try to pour yourself into it in your own home, you need an escape, and mm. you you really do risk burning yourself out very quickly. Mm. Um, it also becomes sort of more emotional in the sense that this is happening here, right? There's a way that you can almost other the context of inequality in another place, right? Oh, it's Kenya. It's you know they they have you some political have struggles, right? When it's happening in your city, it causes you to be much more engaged politically because you get very upset with why this is happening in my neighborhood, right? Not in another neighborhood, but in, in my neighborhood. Yeah. So. Um, okay. Um, yeah. I don't, that, that aspect of it is just is kind of interesting to me. Um, but can you talk more about what you guys have actually been doing you and your, your collaborators with, um, with resettlement? You know, uh, I think you mentioned in your bio that you've been working on things such as like transportation, mm-hmm. all the way to school bullying and diet and nutrition. You know, a full spectrum of of resettlement. Um, so you can talk a little bit about yes. that. Yes. So this has been exciting, and I, I want to start by saying that I want to I want to thank my department here as an applied anthropology department because they have allowed this to proceed uh, as it's proceeded, largely because this has been unfunded research. Um, the state of Florida, through the Department of Children and Family and the Refugee Task Force, as well as several non, uh, nonprofits, local resettlement organizations, have come to us repeatedly inviting us to help them uh, with this research. And it's often, it needs to be done immediately. Uh, and so yesterday mm-hmm. I had, yesterday at lunchtime, I got a call from a caseworker who has four new Congolese families. Um, she is having a lot of issues with medical issues, but also with hygiene and cleaning issues. And so on Tuesday, we will have our little team out there doing workshops, but also, in a sense, collecting data. Um, the whole thing started, though, just to, to get back to that, it started uh, looking at health and nutrition and diet. The idea being people who have lived on refugee camps for 10 or 20 years, as the Congolese had, um, they've been malnourished, so they are stunted in growth. And this is fairly common. People are really short. Uh, when they come to the U.S., what happens is they start eating a lot of food, and they don't grow up. They grow out. <laughs> and so that sets them up for diabetes and obesity, and, and there is a high rate of diabetes in the community, uh, which is somewhat surprising that you would have such diabetes. That, however, then led into bullying issues. A lot of the kids in our research complained that they weren't getting enough food, and one of the reasons was because they weren't being able to eat at school, because they were being bullied at school, they were being denied food at school, they weren't given a place to eat. Um, There were lots of different aspects to this. And so we went late spring 2017 and and summer of 2017, we went into kind of emergency mode uh, and had six focus groups that looked at um, bullying issues, including uh, two groups that looked at parents 
and talked to parents about their experience with their children's bullying, that actually opened up a lot to what the parents are dealing with as well. The parents are also being bullied. Um, there was a lot of violence taking place in neighborhoods. And so I'm actually I'm finishing a, a, an article manuscript on this right now uh, that really looks at Tampa. And uh, one of the parts that I was just writing about actually is, you know, Tampa is a city that prides itself on being welcoming and open-armed, and yet it is seeing some of the worst violence to refugees that is has been recorded, really, mm-hmm. anywhere uh, in the U.S. And uh, Can I just interrupt and ask, is it, yeah. this is like a recent thing, or or would you say that this has been kind of a, a, an underlying issue that refugees... So this has been an underlying, yeah. Okay. So this has been underlying, and this is what I'm working on actually in this article is, what I say is this is not a contradiction. This is not, you know, by any means, you know, a coincidence that a welcoming city has this kind of violence because you have a marginalized section of the city who has long historically been denied access to what Tampa promises, and when new immigrants and new groups come in saying they go, they go, you know, we want those people too. Yeah, you know. It's sort of like you think you're going to get as Africans access. Yeah, right. And there's right. a lot of that that we're seeing. Um, now, it's there's a long history of this. Yeah, so it's interesting. Do you think if they'd put those refugee families in, like, South Tampa, which is kind of a wealthy enclave? It would be different. Totally different experience. It would be. And unfortunately, they are placed in the poorest of the poorest communities because they have to be because nobody can afford. Yeah. No. But what, what, like, is that like the not in my backyard thing you know we're, we're I mean, I, I, I don't to under, some extent I don't like what it's probably land it value takes, economics like, it has how, to, as my guess part of it well like, so yeah and i can i can talk a little bit about this i mean it because it's all been very new and surprising to me uh but one of like for example um getting back to your other question there's a long history of this really with haitians this happened in the 80s and 90s almost exactly the same um, and there's been research on other African groups, Nigerians, for example, in America, and they've been treated very similar. But what's happening with the Congolese is much more similar to what happened with Haitians in Tampa and in Miami in particular, uh, where the targeting was coming from African-Americans. And it was specifically looking at Haitians as a different type of black people, let's just say. <laughs> that phenomena, just from my personal experience, and I've had friends from New York that have said the same thing, where there's it's all kinds very, of yeah, insults yeah. specific to Haitians, and, and even uh, I lived in the Caribbean for about five years, same thing. That mm-hmm. Amongst other Caribbean islanders, Haitians got a bad rap. Right. And and, and and what we're seeing with the Congolese at this point is is very similar to, to what we found uh, with Haitians. Now, not as many people know what it means to be Congolese. There aren't as many Congolese as there are Haitians, but a lot of what they're dealing with is very similar. As soon as they overcome some of the language gaps, as soon as they learn who to talk to at school, and we've done some research on this, like what does work, um, they learn to use like Google Translate, for example, in mm. school, which actually has been helpful for a lot of kids. Oh, cool. They're making progress. Um, you know, but there's there's that history there. Sure. We'll, we'll we'll take a, a quick break and then um, we'll we'll come back and we'll finish answering that question. Okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, stay keep it locked on Bulls Radio. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Anthro Alert on WUSF eighty nine point seven HD three Tampa sixteen twenty AM on campus and streaming worldwide twenty four seven live and on the scene at on uh, TuneIn dot com. Uh, this is Bulls Radio. This is Anthro Alert, and uh, in this in this conversation we're talking about refugee resettlement. Here in Tampa with uh, 
professor of anthropology here at the University of South Florida, Dr. Dylan Mahoney. And, um, and so I, I guess my, my follow-up question then, Dr. Mahoney, is to ask you, just kind of like, a, t- tell, tell me a little bit more about that refuge, like what does that resettlement process look like here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe identify where some of those problems start to, start to crop in. Sure. So, you, I mean, you have, you have resettlement and then you have integration. And the funding is often different. State Department and Office of Refugee uh, Services will fund uh, resettlement. But that's a three-month process. And that's how long they get funding for. Now, integration takes place after that. But that depends on an array of other types of funding that's not coming from the federal government. That can easily and very quickly be cut. And that's what's happened over the last couple of years. And so when people first arrive, they get three months of, of, of support. Uh, but at the same time, they need to be placed into places where they can get jobs and then pay the rent. And one of the biggest problems we have in Tampa right now is the rents are going up very rapidly. Resettlement services cannot find places to live. They're even asking people like me, can you help us find apartments? Can you help us find houses? Uh, it's very, very difficult. We're also placing a lot of families into housing in Tampa, even though it's in some of the most marginalized, some of the poorest neighborhoods, they still won't be able to pay that rent when whatever the refugee service resettled them stops. And they know that. Um, and sometimes, you know, we've been real, really struggling with this. It used to be that that was never an issue in Tampa. Um, you could always get a, a you know, low-paying job and get a cheap place to live, and you really can't do that anymore. And so that's actually pushed a lot of refugees further into the margins and put them into more vulnerable positions. Mm. It's been a real challenge, I should say, to everybody who works in refugee services to figure out how do we deal with this. Sometimes the best thing to do is to help families right away find another place to live. Uh, and I will say about 40% of the refugees from the Congo who have come here uh, to, to Tampa, originally from, from the DRC Congo, have moved to other cities. Uh, Houston, Syracuse, Cleveland, Des Moines, Lansing, Michigan, those are the cities they're going to. Iowa, really? Yep, Cleveland and, and Iowa, Ohio, no, Michigan. No, nothing against Iowa. But nothing against Iowa. Meatpacking. Farm, it's meatpacking. Uh-huh. It's, it's okay. farm jobs, high-paying mm. jobs, Kentucky. Mm. A lot of people have moved to Kentucky. A lot of states, honestly, where they're having problems getting people to work in those states. Uh, Indiana. I just actually mm-hmm. read a big article mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can live for extremely cheap. You can get very cheap housing. Mm-hmm. The issue is always snow and often violence. And they often find a lot of bo- violence and poverty in those cities as well. Um, one of our community leaders just moved to Houston recently and immediately had his car broken into and had all of his papers stolen. And it was a real catastrophe, actually. Mm-hmm. And he said, I wish I could go back to Tampa. <laughs> uh, so it's really difficult. The other thing is that the services have really had their funding cut and their numbers have just dwindled. The number of people that are working for Lutheran services, Coptic charities, uh, Catholic charities, the various organizations is that funding has declined rapidly. And that's not, that's um, non-governmental that's full, funding. That's full, it's state and federal funding, largely. So is that part of this political cycle? That is absolutely part of this political okay. cycle. I mean, there has been, a, and many would say, a political war on refugees and immigrants. This is how it plays out. It plays out through massive funding cuts. Um, it also means that we're having not only fewer refugees, but a lot of people losing jobs in Tampa who are not immigrants or refugees, who are Americans, who are doing really important work. Mm. Now, in a couple of years, uh, and I was just reading about this in the New York Times, our, our, you know, the number of refugees coming into the U.S. right now is lower than it's been. Uh, this article was saying going back to the 80s. But in a couple of years, that number could shoot right back up. 
mm-hmm. in which case you're going to have to hire people again. Yeah. And, and who are those people going to be? A lot of people who have been fired may not be rehired, but a lot of our students in anthropology and at the USF who are working on these projects are getting offers now. And that's really kind of interesting is that we've had a number of people who are part of our project, researchers and volunteers, uh, who are in this economy being offered positions. Um, and so there are there is some hope there, I yeah. think. There are some possibilities, especially if you as an anthropologist can bring your skill set mm to the table, you are already going to be more prepared than a lot of the other people who are trying to work in this field, let's say, because they have, you know, they want to do the right thing, yeah. which is great. Right. Uh, but there's a skill set that you also really need that's often lacking yeah. that we bring. But. So what advice may you have for students um, that, you know, sometime in the future or even now want to get into this type of work with refugees or resettlement or... The, the work, and I have to say, and this is maybe a sad thing to say, the work begins with volunteering. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really does. And, and you, you very quickly get a love for what you're doing if you have any respect, I think, for what these people have been through. It's pretty actually easy to get involved. If you're interested in getting involved at all around USF, there are lots of different organizations. Uh, I've been helping one that's called Woke Inc. that doesn't even work really with Congolese they're, they're tutoring in our, the basement of the social science building. You may see them sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of different groups. There's the Umojo Africa Tampa, Africa United Tampa, which is a youth video group. So there's uh, various women's groups. There's a group called Ramwi. Um, there's also a specific Congolese women's group. There's uh, all types of English programs taking place. So the beginning really is volunteering, but you can turn that into internships and research opportunities. If you're a student, it's very easy, actually, to turn these into educational opportunities for you, especially if you're working with a professor or somebody who's overseeing you. You can blend in language training and cultural training with that as well. And then you make the connections. And oftentimes it is about knowing who works for these organizations. What is the, the landscape? Uh, I understand the landscape in Tampa very well. It would be very different if you go to Orlando or Miami go to Houston or Arizona or New York, you're going to find a totally different political landscape, different funding, different players. And one of the things we're actually really good at as anthropologists is figuring those things out uh, and then figuring out where you can, you know, make your make your move. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I, I, I invite any anthropologist looking to get into this sector to come and talk to me, really. Uh, a lot of it is about advice. It's about understanding those politics and those power dynamics. Um, but getting involved and being able to take a culturally relative approach, being able to communicate across cultural and linguistic boundaries will immediately actually make you look different. It'll mm-hmm. set you apart. Um, and in our early work, I should say, with the resettlement services, and I'm not trying to criti- critique them, but there were some times where we ran into some people who it's like, really? Hmm, <laughs> you work in refugee services. <laughs> There's room for a lot more highly qualified people. Mm-hmm. Um, not, know, not trying um, to sound critical of them. Do you know what some of the other larger refugee populations are that are coming in to Tampa besides the Congolese? Yes, absolutely. So um, the largest populations have been, well, historically was Cubans. Okay. Yeah. Cubans, however, came in on a special Cuban policy. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're somewhat different, obviously, than a lot of the other refugees that are coming in. Mm-hmm. Um Eighty-five percent, though, of people processed through Tampa were always Cuban up until about a year or two ago. Eighty-five percent. The rest, however, the biggest groups are Syrians, Iraqis, and Congolese. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. And that's been the case for several years. So other than Congolese in Tampa, the big communities we're dealing with are Syrians and Iraqis. Mm. Really, Syrians have mm. become, in the last couple of years, the biggest. Yeah, yeah. There's a wonderful group called Radiant Hands. It's a nonprofit that gets lots of funding, independent funding. Uh, they work largely with Muslim refugees, and they're excellent. They're really amazing. Um, what's interesting is there's lots of groups like that to work with Muslim refugees. There's lots of groups like that to work with Cubans and Haitians and people from various countries. There are no organizations like that to work with Africans uh, and specifically Congolese. And that's where you know you have the state funding, then you have this other nonprofit funding. But if you have a community where nobody really wants to help, um, you know, a lot of people actually have come forward saying they want to give money to Syrians and Syrian refugees. It's in the media. Mm. Uh, and in one case, we had people where we said, you know, and this is a bit of a complicated story, but they were told, actually, we'd rather you give money for Congolese instead of Syrians. And they said, well, no, thanks. And you get that. People want to help a particular group. They want to help Syrians. And but that's, do you think part why of help Congolese? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, like, who, who do you see on TV? Exactly, right? I mean, it's yeah. the it's like the public discourse and, yeah. you know, the the drama that's... And they're very different communities. Yeah. I mean, the Syrians who are coming here are coming from a very developed country, high levels of education. They have driver's license. They can read and write. Um, they've just dealt with an extremely traumatic war. So mm -hmm. what they're dealing with is very different than what the Congolese are dealing with. Mm -hmm. The Congolese, the war was 10, 20 years ago. But what they've been dealing with is systematic lack of education, lack of health care, yeah. and lack of care. You know, so their needs are that's just completely such a different. more difficult narrative than war-torn country, don't you think? I mean, well, and especially because the condition the Congolese are in would not be like this if we had done something 15 or 20 years ago. Right. But instead, nobody did anything, and we made you know million-plus people sit on camps yeah. in countries that couldn't help them yeah and so a huge number of the refugees that we have coming here to tampa can't read or write um have trouble counting past 30 can't write their name right. um and you know they need to find jobs and pay rent in three months in the u.s yeah so you know that's that's kind of a lot of the real struggles there's yeah they're they're set up to fail is this and, learning to read and write in swahili or i'm assuming in english as well or just english or uh a lot of people as i said uh, and I may have been cyper, slightly hyperbolic with my last statement, but uh, a lot of people cannot write any English, Swahili, nothing. Okay. I mean, mm -hmm. their own name is an X. Um, there are then many people actually who do can read and write in Swahili, right? Yeah. Which is helpful. Yeah. Um, for us, and then again, some who had more education can read and write in French. Um, and then s there are some English speakers, but very few. But we can mm -hmm. use French. Uh, it's a very multilingual population. Yeah. Um, in any hmm. case. Okay. Um, so I I think we need to to wrap up the show, unfortunately, um, because I think we could we could go on and and definitely discuss some more things. Um, it never. Yeah. Yeah. With yeah. refugee resettlement, there's an a lot of things to to talk about, right? Yes. Um, but first, we'd like to thank you for coming in. It was um, my pleasure. And and speaking with us about that. Um, so for anyone that is, is interested, um, we w can put Dr. Um, Mahoney's information on anthroalert.com. 
So um, I'm sure you can feel free to contact him. Yep, absolutely. By email, absolutely. Yeah. You can feel free to email me and some of the other. Uh, if if there's a link, I think to one of the YouTube videos from our YouTube group. Yes, um, we didn't get to talk about that. Um, there may be some other information that you can find though if you check out the yes. Anthro Alert website. Yeah, so we can post all that on AnthroAlert.com. We ran out of time, so we can't talk about that unfortunately. Um, but thank you for listening and stay tuned. We will be back next week. <laughs>